Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. This week, the fight over taxes heats up in Olympia. Every taxing authority in our nation, from the IRS on down, treats taxes on capital gains as income taxes because capital gains are income. Governor Inslee squares off against Republicans over abortion. <laughs> I'm trying to say this in a respectful way. What world are you living in? Plus, good news on the economy. I think the big takeaway here is that this report gives us some hope that maybe we can achieve that soft land we keep talking about. And the former president returns to social media. Meta letting Donald Trump back on Facebook and Instagram sites with some conditions. All of that coming up this hour, but first, the state Supreme Court this week heard arguments over the state's capital gains tax. Republicans deride it as an illegal income tax, while Democrats say it's just an excise tax on profits. So joining me now is Paul Query. He is a longtime Associated Press reporter, former Associated Press reporter down in Olympia, and now the editor of the Washington Observer. And he's been writing a piece on this. And, well, this has become one of the most controversial pieces of tax legislation over the last several years to come through Olympia. The income tax, as the Republicans like to call it, or the capital gains tax, as the Democrats like to call it. And I guess the first question is, which one of those is it? Well, there's, you know, there's sort of an interesting debate on this. The the income tax is generally considered unconstitutional in Washington because a 1933 Supreme Court ruling found that income is property and therefore it's subject to the restrictions on property tax in Washington, which is basically that The tax rate can't be higher than 1%, and the tax has to be applied equally to all kinds of property. Um, So that's um, to avoid that problem, the legislature called this an excise tax when they passed it. And they argue that the, the state argues that the tax is on the transaction of selling stocks and bonds um, and not a tax on the actual income. Is that by definition what an excise tax is, a tax on the transaction? Right. And we have lots of excise taxes in Washington. I mean, the sales tax is an excise tax. There are excise taxes on tobacco and booze and weed. Um, There's a tax when you buy or sell a house, there's a real estate excise tax. Typically, those are taxes on the whole transaction, the whole value of the transaction, instead of just the the gain or the profit. And in this case, the, the tax, as you say, the Democrats have written the bill in a, in a way to sort of define it as an excise tax. But what transaction are we talking about here? Because Republicans will argue you're just taxing based on someone's bank account. Yeah, I mean, basically, the tax applies to capital gains of more than $250,000, um, which puts it, you know, puts you into pretty rarefied territory as far as taxpayers go. I mean, it's only a handful of, you know, a few thousand, uh, you know, very rich people every year. And the question before the court is whether that's an income tax. The opponents of the tax won at the lower court out in Douglas County last year, Um, and this is an appeal to the Supreme Court by the state and um, by other folks who support the tax um, to try and get it declared constitutional. So when we talk about a capital gain, this is, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm certainly not a financial analyst, but we're talking about, say, I've invested $100 in a company. Well, at the end of the year, that stock is now worth $150. So the tax would be on that $50 increase in value, correct? Right. Only it wouldn't apply unless you had a gain of more than $250,000. So, would you know, we're talking about 
initial investments typically in the million. So it's going to be, as you say, uh, affecting not a lot of Washingtonians, but I would imagine it would still bring in a lot of money for the state coffers. Yes, about uh, $500 million a year is the estimate. And where would that money go? The money is basically goes into the general fund. Um, that tax was passed sort of in conjunction with um, the funding of the working families tax credit, which kicks a lot of money back to will kick a lot of money back to low income families in Washington. And then specifically, it was tied to a big increase in child care subsidies and other lear- early learning programs. So if this tax gets struck down by the state Supreme Court as unconstitutional, that would put a pretty big hole in the budget. Yeah, it would punch a pretty big hole. It would it would cause some problems. So what were some of the arguments that we saw in front of the justices during that hearing on Thursday? And, and, and how did the justices seem to respond? The opponents of the tax argue a couple of things. They argue that it's an income tax and therefore unconstitutional. Um, and they also argue that because a lot of these transactions will actually happen out of state, that it's a violation of the federal constitution because it interferes with interstate commerce. Now, on the other side, you have sort of two arguments in favor of the tax. One is, uh, you know, Attorney General Bob Ferguson and his folks are defending the tax as written as an excise tax. And then you also have some folks um, who represent some school districts and the WEA and some some other um, folks who want more tax revenue to pay for education and other things. And they're arguing that the court should overturn the ban on income taxes entirely, should go back to that 1933 decision and throw it out. If you're looking at that, the one argument where you said that the Republicans are arguing that this is a violation of the federal constitution because it violates the interstate commerce clause of the of the US constitution. Can the state supreme court even rule on that cuz aren't they supposed to be ruling on state laws and not questions of federal law? I think that they could certainly find that it was in violation of of that of that ruling. I it would be more common for them to rule on state law, but it's not out of the question. So what did the justices have to say if you look at some of their questioning and 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 way where they were going and how they were interrogating I guess some of the uh, the attorneys for both sides uh, yeah. did they seem to kind of give a, a a lean one way or the other? It's always dangerous to handicap the court based on the oral arguments because a lot of these arguments have already been made in writing and the justices are typically kind of probing and you know and and asking some sort of sharp questions. Um, but you did have Justice McLeod asked Solicitor General, General Noah Purcell, who was arguing for the state, how this wasn't an income tax, given that it's a tax on the profit of the transaction instead of the whole transaction. Um, so she was really probing at that. And then Justice Deborah Stevens, when she was questioning the lawyer for the folks who want the ban on income taxes thrown out entirely, was asking him why the court should really consider these arguments, which had been considered and dismissed by prior courts many times before. So I would have to say that the capital gains tax had kind of a rough day in court, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's not going to prevail in the end. You say that one of the proponents of the excise tax or income tax, depending on who you ask, said they want the law striking down any income tax in the state of Washington to be thrown out. Wouldn't that require a state constitutional change? Well, it would require a debt. It would either require the court to change precedent of the court or it would require 
the Constitution to be changed, which in Washington is actually a pretty heavy lift. You need a supermajority in both houses of the legislature, and then it has to go to the people, um, and the people have to say yes. And this has actually happened multiple times in state history that the legislature has sent an income tax to the people, and the people have said no. Now, the last time was many years ago. Um, so the question of whether the outcome would be the same is somewhat open. So have we seen any response from the two sides following these oral arguments that happened on Thursday? The folks, the supporters of the tax um, say that they're kind of cautiously optimistic that the court will rule um, in their favor. Um, I wrote in The Observer on Wednesday that the excise tax argument offers the court kind of a narrow path in the sense that they could uphold this specific tax as an excise tax and not go to the larger constitutional question of, of the income tax. At this point, I think it's anybody's guess. I would imagine that if it's upheld, the opponents of the tax would probably then take that federal argument of a violation of the U.S. Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause uh, to the Ninth Circuit. I would think that there would be some sort of federal argument against it. You know, I, I, I haven't heard them say that specifically, but obviously, you know, there are thousands of people with millions of reasons to fight this tax for as long as it takes. All right, Paul Query, editor of the Washington Observer, former Associated Press reporter from down in Olympia. Thank you so much for your time and insight. I'm happy to help. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Governor Inslee makes a rare appearance in front of the state legislature. What he was doing there when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, here in Washington, the voters have voted twice to affirm abortion rights under state law. However, with the fall of Roe v. Wade last summer in the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, Governor Jay Inslee and Democrats feel that a third vote is needed, although this time they don't want to enshrine abortion rights in state law, but rather the state constitution. That's a much heavier lift. Joining me now is Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, who has been covering the governor over the last couple of weeks as we delve into the legislative session and a rare appearance by Governor Inslee in front of the state legislature this past week. Indeed, he was there in front of the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee bright and early, first thing uh, just the other morning, to talk about this proposed constitutional amendment. The basic idea here is to take what's already codified in state law in terms of uh, a woman's right to reproductive services, including abortions, and put that into the state constitution so that it has sort of an added layer of protection. And the governor, in fact, you know, made the point that, uh, you know, this is a situation where not only in other states have they already tried to, you know, outlaw abortion or have pretty much outright outlawed abortion. He says in Congress, there's a national effort to try to do it, you know, on a national level. But he says even here in the Washington state legislature in the first couple of weeks of the session, there have been bills that uh, he says the other party, as he refers to him as uh, the leading Democrat in Washington, has tried to put in to try to limit abortion rights here in Washington state. So he went before this committee to push really hard to get this amendment passed. And what it has to do is get through two thirds of both houses, then he would have to sign it. And that puts it on the ballot for the people to vote 
that's a 50% plus one, a simple majority in that case. The two-thirds is uh, on the legislature to get past that. I would imagine that that two-thirds, the legislature, is the bigger hurdle. If it went directly to the people, I think a 50% plus one would certainly pass in this state, but getting two-thirds of the state legislature, not so much. Oh, easily. And in fact, I think uh, when it, when and if it does go to a vote again, I would suspect that not only would uh, most Democrats vote in favor of it, but you would have enough Republicans that it could probably get, you know, 60 percent of the vote. But, you know, going back to this hearing in the committee, it also when you bring up the abortion issue, especially after the Dobbs decision overturned, you know, Roe v. Wade from 1973, 50 years of precedent, you know, you, you, you get in part the initial, the original, the fundamental debate on abortion. Is it a woman's right to, you know, control her own reproductive system and whether or not she should be pregnant if she doesn't want to be? And in fact, Governor Inslee referred to those things as forced pregnancies when abortions are not allowed. And then, of course, the the pro-life side you know, conception, uh, life begins at conception, and you're talking about, uh, you know, murder if you, uh, you know, engage and have an abortion. So, you know, it really brings that debate back to the surface. Yeah, so none of these arguments are really anything new. It's the same thing we've heard over the last 50 years. Exactly, but it also brings up, of course, this debate over the amendment itself. Now, on the more fundamental side, Republican State Senator Mike Padden, who's been in the legislature for a long time, raised a specific question of Governor Inslee. Do you believe there are any uh, situations at all where abortion should not be allowed, or do you believe it should be allowed at any time for any reason, regardless of the viability of the unborn child? My feelings on it, to some degree, are irrelevant. This constitutional amendment would essentially codify in the Constitution our current law, which was passed by the voters, that does have some restrictions on the time of a woman's right of choice. Now, Jeff, you also mentioned the heavy lift, that being the two-thirds majority required. California legislature has the two-thirds supermajority. The Washington legislature does not. So they would require some Republican votes to get this thing on the ballot. That was part of a rather testy exchange. Granted, it was early. They might not have had enough coffee, but Republican Senator Ann Rivers from La Center and the governor got into a little bit of a, a heated discussion there. The idea that we are going to remove the fear of not being able to get an abortion, um, we're preying on what are some women's deepest, darkest fear. But I offer to you, Mr. Governor, that the law is settled here and look at the makeup of the legislature and the makeup of our Supreme Court. You know, political theater aside, I don't see any, any world in which Washington state changes course on this issue. I would hope that we could all stop the fear mongering of women losing the right to choose and move on to issues that are um, more pressing for the state, like making sure people have adequate health care coverage. Well, I am a little flummoxed by your question, and I'm trying to wonder, I'm trying to say this in a respectful way, what world are you living in? 
There is a party in our state that wakes up every single morning trying to take away this right from women. And in multiple states, they have done so effectively. And while you've been sitting here for two weeks, there have been multiple bills in this legislature to take away this right. And what we all assumed was a fixed star in the constellation of the Roe versus Wade decision was yanked out from women because of, of one election cycle. So I think this is the right thing to do. And, you know, the governor makes the ultimate point that it was that one election cycle that so quickly unraveled 50 years of precedent. So that, that, of course, one- 2016, President Trump got three nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court through, and he only had one term. Each of the previous two presidents had two terms. They each only got two. Yeah, and, you know, a president is lucky to get one because it's a lifetime appointment. So it really, you know, was a, a matter of timing in terms of the, the Trump appointees. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of folks that argue because those those uh, three that he nominated to the high court you know, got up there and said, well, we have no intention, basically, of, of overturning Roe. And then it happened anyway. So, you know, it, it's I can see the governor's point in terms of, you know, if you want to protect abortion rights, a state constitutional amendment gives it a lot more teeth. But at the same time, you know, I can see the Republican side of it where they don't think that in 30 years of attempts to toss out the existing Washington state law that it's going to happen. And they don't think that this amendment is going to get the two thirds it needs to get to you on the ballot. So uh, maybe it is an act of political theater. Uh, What happens with it remains to be seen, but I suspect it'll at least make it to floor votes in each house. Well, certainly if it makes it to floor votes, then the Democrats can put all the Republican lawmakers on record as voting for or against it. I think Senator Rivers' point is a valid one. While the country is pretty much right down the middle, a 50-50 split, Washington state is not. And it's really hard to envision a, a scenario in which Washington shifts far enough to the right to eliminate uh, the right to get an abortion for women in this state. Governor Inslee, of course, had that counterpoint, but putting this to a vote puts lawmakers on record and that's something that democrats want to do looking at the results of the last election obviously a lot turned on that dobbs decision and as long as you're talking about roe v wade democrats seem to be winning yeah absolutely and with all due respect jeff because there's not too many people around that know more about politics than you (laughs) i do have to respectfully disagree that washington is really that far to the left i know it often feels like it living in western washington but you know as well as anybody Mm -hmm. that that washington is often seen as a purple state and again because the legislature doesn't have that uh, democratic supermajority like they do uh, down in the golden state it's a little closer to the center but you make a very good point in that by putting lawmakers republican lawmakers and themselves on record in terms of how they would vote for this they can then campaign on it and we are coming up on another election year before we know it and in fact governor inslee made that point as well he says you know People who ran this past year campaigned on the abortion issue. So there, I think the Democrats here are at the very least setting themselves up for the next campaign with the Dobbs decision in place and Roe v. Wade out. 
So how far do you think this goes? Because I would tend to guess it would certainly clear out of committee. But as we said, I don't see a scenario where Washington state shifts enough to the right to get abortion rights eliminated in this state. I also don't see how the legislature shifts enough to the left to get the two-thirds supermajority. Exactly. And, you know, the one could argue that you could make the case with Republican lawmakers who are ready to vote against it. Hey, why don't you put it to your constituents for a vote? Why don't you at least vote to get this on the ballot and hear what the people have to say today? Because it's been 30 years since the initiative that put it into law in the first place. But I, like you said, I don't see that happening. There are enough Republicans in Olympia that are going to dig in their heels that it might get to four votes, but I don't think it makes it to the governor's desk for a signature or to the next ballot. All right, Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, thank you so much for your time and insight. My pleasure, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, Republicans and Democrats threaten to grind Congress to a halt if they don't get cooperation from President Biden when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, DocuGate seems to have gained some steam in the past week. Members of the Senate Intelligence Committee on Wednesday emerged outraged from a two-hour security briefing with the Director of National Intelligence threatening to grind the chamber's business to a halt if the Biden administration does not provide access to the classified documents seized from the current president and former president. Now, this is a rare show of bipartisanship in the Senate, and covering it is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and you don't see that very much these days. Well, I think you're seeing it because you have Republicans and Democrats uh, angry that they're not getting access to a Republican former president's papers and a current Democrat president's papers as well. So I think that's where the bipartisan outrage is coming from. Uh, you might not have seen that where it was just one party's president doing this. But in this case, uh, the Republicans are saying, hey, we got to see all these papers from President Biden and the Democrats saying, yeah, we also got to see them from President Trump. So in that they are agreeing on. And and here's why the Senate intelligence folks are upset about this. They have top secret clearance. They had to go through this big clearance process they also have oversight over the intelligence agencies in this country. Uh, the intelligence agencies don't just get to act on their own. The CIA and the uh, the National uh, Security Agency and others can't just kind of do whatever they please without having some oversight, and that's why they have these committees. And they are a bit different than other committees in that a lot of their work gets done behind closed doors, and we don't really see what happens. So they have the legal authority to look at these papers to say, yeah, we, we got to know if any national security secrets leaked out or per, perhaps potentially damaged uh, national security interests because they were laying around in boxes in President Biden's garage or Mike Pence's home or Donald Trump's office and under his desk and wherever they were being stored in Mar-a-Lago. So those are legitimate concerns, and they have legitimate oversight reasons to do that. And some of those senators now in both parties are saying, hey, we're going to just shut this whole Senate operation down uh, for anything President Biden wants to get passed until he tells his intelligence agencies to cough up the papers. So who are we seeing on the Senate Intelligence Committee that is pushing this? Uh, pretty much the leaders on both sides, uh, in the Republicans. It's it's pretty unanimous. You rarely see this, that all the members are going, yeah, we're not happy about this. 
Uh, now, there are some uh, senators outside the Intelligence Committee that are saying, you know, why don't we just let the the Justice Department do its job before we start meddling in this here? Uh, to which the folks who want to see these papers are saying, hey, wait a minute. The, we're not stopping the Justice Department from doing anything. The Justice Department can do any kind of prosecution they want. Our job is oversight of intelligence. And if there are bigger problems here, not just former presidents and current presidents having these papers where they shouldn't have them, but do we have a system where we can't manage our classified documents at all that a lot of the stuff is just flying around there without any protections at all? And does Congress need to pass new laws to fix that? That's one of the reasons that they have the oversight and that they're very concerned about this. And this comes just as the National Archives is asking all living former presidents and vice presidents, check your homes, check your backyards, see if you have any classified documents there, because this seems to be something that, as we talked about with the committee, crosses aisles. You have the Democratic incumbent president, the Republican former president, the Republican former vice president. It's not just one party that's doing this and mishandling these classified documents. No, but there is only one person who has resisted sending them back to where they belong, and that is Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump uh, has made public statements saying that, and even at one point saying, yeah, I took some of these folders that said classified as mementos to say, hey, this is kind of a cool thing to keep. Uh, he's also said that he declassified some of these papers with his mind, which boggles the mind of most intelligence folks who say, no, there's a process for declassification and it doesn't involve a Vulcan mind meld. The other things that he's done and his lawyers were to resist subpoenas and actually ignore requests, repeated requests from the Justice Department, from the FBI, from National Archives for almost a year, uh, and insisting, in one case, uh, his lawyer signed a, a sworn affidavit under oath that there was nothing else left to find. So the archives had to go back in to the FBI and say, no, we seem to have a lot of stuff missing from the Trump administration. Uh, they brought that evidence to a federal judge who, by the way, was appointed by Donald Trump. He looked at the evidence and said, yes, the FBI has permission to go in and do a search of Donald Trump's home. That is where his case is dramatically different than what we've seen with uh, President Biden and former Vice President Mike Pence, who said, wow, we didn't know this stuff was here. Here, We're handing it over. And in uh, President Biden's case, invited the FBI and said, hey, you want to search? Come on and search. And search they did for 13 hours. Is this just presidents and vice presidents and former presidents and former vice presidents that we're concerned about? Or has this expanded in a way to include, say, the Director of National Intelligence or the National Security Advisor, someone else who may have access to these documents, not just those top two and the President and VP? Well, I think the difference between the top executives and others is that almost all of the others have to go into what they call SCIFs, Secure Compartmentalized Information Facilities, SCIF. And they have to go in there, read the documents. They can't bring their phones in there. They can't, I don't think they can even bring in uh, papers to take notes. They can look at the stuff. They can read it. It gets packed back up, put back uh, under lock and key, and they walk out, which is one of the things that has many senators scratching their heads on how President Biden in his home could have documents that have classified markings on it from his days in the U.S. Senate because virtually every senator we spoke with it's impossible to take that stuff out of there. 
So uh, it led Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, to say, well, what did he do, stuff it in his pants or his socks and walk out the door? We don't know the answer to that, but we do know that someone actually did that at one time, and it was Sandy Berger. He was an uh, advisor to former President Clinton, uh, who was actually caught doing that. He went into one of these secure locations to look at some papers and actually stuffed some of them in his socks and walked out and got into a lot of trouble for it. So what is the ultimate security concern here, that these documents, the information that they're, that's contained within them, falls into the wrong hands? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, the Republicans are saying, well, gee, Hunter Biden had all these dealings with China and Ukraine, and he was living at dad's house while these documents were being stored there. Did he have access to them? What was in the documents? Was he selling secrets to other, you know, these these are the nefarious theories that Republicans are putting out there without any evidence that any of it's true. But certainly it's a question that they want to have looked into. And at the same time, Democrats are saying, well, look at President Trump. He's got Mar-a-Lago, which is basically an open country club where virtually anyone can come and go. And he invites Saudis and foreign nationals to come in there and talk to him all the time. And did they have access to those documents? And what were in those documents? Those are legitimate concerns that people have on what's in the documents and did it threaten national security? So is the Senate Intelligence Committee going to launch its own investigation, or are they just going to rely on the Department of Justice? I don't know that they're going to launch their own investigation. They do want to look at these documents. Again, they mentioned that they are threatening to shut things down in the Senate, which will make it hard for President Biden to get things passed until he tells his Intelligence Committee, hey, hand over those documents so they can see them. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Donald Trump returns to social media. What that means for 2024 when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Former President Donald Trump is returning to social media. Meta has decided to reinstate Mr. Trump on Facebook and Instagram. His accounts were suspended indefinitely following the January 6th insurrection in which Meta, Twitter, and others found the former president in violation of their terms of service. I spoke with the Washington Post's Michael Scherer. First, a little background. Why exactly was Mr. Trump suspended? What were the terms that he violated? They decided after the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, that uh, his public posting before and uh, immediately after had played a role in that violence. And, and Facebook does have terms that, you know, restricts content that you know, causes civil unrest or promotes violence. Uh, and they were, you know, one of many social networks that took those steps. Twitter also suspended the then president at the time, uh, YouTube took steps to freeze his YouTube account for Google. Facebook initially did it indefinitely, and then later they came back and they said it would be a two-year suspension and that they would review it this month, and, and that's, that's how we get to where we are. So what did they find in reinstating him after that review? They concluded that the threat that was present in January of 2021 is no longer present, the threat of you know eminent violence based on what the president might share on his Facebook account. They said they're going to put new guardrails in place, they're going to be closely monitoring what he posts, and that there will be immediate consequences, temporary suspensions, maybe a longer suspension, if he returns to doing things that violate terms of service again. Um, But they basically concluded that he should be allowed back in and that it's important for sort of the general public debate. I mean, he is a candidate, again, for president, Facebook remains a major political communications tool for campaigns. 
for fundraising for this building. And so, uh, you know, Facebook was in a position where if they did not allow him back in, they would be disadvantaging one candidate where other candidates would be able to take advantage of that. Now, is Mr. Trump expected to actually get back on the platform or or be particularly active now that he has his own outlet in Truth Social? Yeah, we do expect him to get back on the platform. Exactly how he does it is a little unclear. He has made clear that he is committed still to Truth Social, where he does basically what he used to do on Twitter. Now, back you know, before, during the presidency of, of President Trump and during his campaign in 2016, Facebook was not his primary social network. He used Twitter for that. He's also been reinstated in Twitter. The thing that the campaign is most focused on when it comes to Facebook is the ability to advertise and reach both his 30 million-plus uh, supporters who follow his account, which is now unfreezed, but also people who can be advertised to on Facebook. Facebook is a pretty prominent tool for campaigns to find supporters and then get them to sign up the list, get them to give money to campaigns. And that is the part of Facebook that I expect the Trump campaign to take advantage of very soon. Now, whether he will also be reposting everything he puts on True Social into his Facebook account, I don't I don't know. All right, Michael Scherer with the Washington Post. You can read more of his coverage at WashingtonPost.com. Now we have to take another quick break, but when we come back, some good news on the economic front as the U.S. might not be headed into a recession after all when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Kim Shepard. Despite fears of a recession, the U.S. economy grew at the end of last year, with the GDP making marked improvement in both the third and fourth quarters. So can we all relax now? Joining us now on the Northwest Newsline, the perfect person to answer that question, Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief at Investopedia and a contributor at ABC News. So, Caleb, what's your take as you look at today's reports? Not too hot, not too cold, a little bit Goldilocks there. And it shows that the economy, while there was issues because of inflation, continued to grow, albeit more slowly. And that's not a bad thing. 2.9% growth for the quarter is pretty strong. And when you look at the year, over 2%, that's okay growth given what we've been through with sky-high inflation. It shows that, yeah, the economy's cooling, but not terribly slowly. Any particular sectors looking really strong? Consumer spending held up for most of the year, and that's super important because consumer spending is 70% of U.S. GDP. Whether we like it or not, we got to keep spending for the economy to keep growing. The services part of the economy was strong. We traveled a lot. We spent a lot on health care also last year. That shows you know, that we're taking better care of ourselves or we're seeing inflation in that area, so we're spending more. But you also saw growth in personal savings and you saw growth in personal income due to wage growth. That's very helpful in an economy that's slowing because households are in better shape today than they were back in 2008. What was weak was that exports were weak to other countries. We saw some weakness coming in at the end of the year in manufacturing. And those are some of the things you want to watch pretty closely. If we have weakness overseas, we do have an, uh, an economy that exports about half of its GDP. So that's something we have to watch going forward. And of course, that billion dollar question, what happens next? We've got this debt ceiling issue. I don't think that we can expect any more major infrastructure investments like that Inflation Reduction Act. So it's up to us at this point, I feel like the public sector to see if we can kind of take off and do this thing on our own this year. And I'd like to think our economy can take off and soar into the sunset. What are you expecting? Yeah, I wouldn't call it soaring off into the sunset, but you're right. There is the debt ceiling that's looming over us. We'll have to deal with that as we get closer to June. We're probably not going to see more government spending. we got gridlock in Washington. Actually, sometimes that's very good for the stock market because nothing really gets done. So in gridlock, at least the, the investors know 
that there's nothing unexpected coming their way. And they know sort of what is baked into policy and spending right now is going to look that way for the next couple of years. But what you want to see here is hopefully we can get through the next quarter or two, because all those big interest rate hikes from 2022, they actually make their way into the economy now and in the second quarter. And that's where we're going to feel the slowdown. People are talking about whether we pass through a recession, we were in one last quarter, not necessarily. We may feel it a little bit more going into the first and second quarter. The good news is that if we have one, it could be shallow and it might not last that long. And the second half of the year looks a lot stronger. And hopefully we get some normalization in the economy as inflation comes down towards 2%. And we have a big inflation report due out tomorrow. What are you expecting to see there? Yeah, the personal consumption expenditures index. This is the Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation because it's a little bit more dynamic and it measures a wider scope of the economy. That has been declining month after month after hitting uh, 40-year highs back in June. That should continue to trend lower, which is another sign for the Federal Reserve that its interest rate hikes are working and bringing inflation down. The Fed meets next week uh, on interest rates. They're going to raise interest rates a quarter of a percent. They pretty much telegraph that to everybody, and they'll probably do it one more time in March, another quarter of a percent hike, and then maybe stop right there because it looks like inflation is coming down, albeit slowly, but coming closer to the Fed's target of 2%. Caleb Silver is the editor-in-chief at Investopedia and a contributor for ABC News. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard, and that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Schwartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.